This talk will be called Entering the Stream, and I will be reflecting upon the uh, third and the fourth tasks, namely to uh, behold or see the stopping of reactivity and to act or, as it more literally reads, uh, to cultivate the path, to cultivate a way of life. I'm going to begin, though, with a sutta, a discourse. This is from the, the numerical discourses of the Buddha, and it is a dialogue with a man called Molya Sivaka. This character only appears twice in the Pali Canon. We don't really know anything about him, apart from the fact that he was not a Buddhist. He was not a follower of the Buddha. He was a wandering mendicant, someone on a quest, and that he wore his hair in a topknot. That's what Molia means, topknot sivaka. A bit like some of the sadhus who still wander around India today. I guess. Anyway, Sivaka comes to the Buddha and he says, you talk of a clearly visible Dharma. In what respects is the Dharma clearly visible? And then he adds on, in what sense is it immediate, inviting, uplifting, to be personally experienced by the wise? And this uh, list of of uh, qualities is probably a very early definition of what the Buddha meant by the Dharma. The Dharma was clearly visible, immediate, inviting, uplifting, and to be personally experienced by the wise. So Sivaka has possibly heard this <coughs> definition and is particularly interested in, in what way is the Dharma clearly visible? And this is the Buddha's reply. He says, let me ask you a question about this. You respond as you see fit. What do you think, Sivaka? When there is greed within you, do you know, oh, there's greed within me? And when there is no greed within you, do you know, ah, there is no greed within me? And Sivaka says, yes. And then the Buddha goes on, then likewise with hatred and delusion and all those qualities of mind associated with greed and hatred and delusion, when they are within you, do you know they are present? And when they're not within you, do you know that they are absent? And Sivaka says, yes. The Buddha then concludes, it is in this way, Sivaka, that the Dharma is clearly visible, immediate, inviting, uplifting, to be personally experienced by the wise. Now, since he is employing this familiar triad that we looked at in the last talk, greed, hatred, delusion, which I think we can safely think of as just uh, another way of describing innate reactivity or craving in the more traditional language. What the Buddha is pointing to is that the Dharma is clearly visible because you can know for yourself whether reactivity is present within you or whether reactivity is not present within you. And what is, I think, particularly striking in this passage is that he's not talking to one of his followers. He's not talking to, a, to a, a monk or someone who has signed up to the Buddhist message. 
this is a fellow, um, clearly someone who is you know, very concerned with these sorts of questions, but is not actually a, uh, a disciple. And yet, in a rather Socratic way, the Buddha doesn't just answer him directly and give a definition of the Dharma, but he throws the question back to Sivaka. I will ask you a question, and you respond as you see right. So he teases out the answer to the question by getting Sivaka to examine his own experience. So this Dharma is um, equivalent to the absence of greed, the absence of hatred, the absence of delusion or egoism or self-centeredness, that can be observed here and now. He's not suggesting that you have to spend months or years meditating, practicing, and then at one distant point in the future one day you'll arrive at this experience of non-reactivity. But non-reactivity is uh, already an experience, a possibility that is present, is uh, knowable, is clearly visible to anyone, whoever you are. It's not a Buddhist thing, it's a human thing. He also says that it's immediate. Immediate uh, is a translation of the Pali akaliko, which is sometimes translated as timeless, not of time, literally. But it doesn't mean eternal in that sense. It means that this is an experience that can be accessed independently of having to go through a temporal sequence of steps that will one day get you there. It's immediate in the sense that it's right here and now. If only you could see it. This is very similar, actually, to what in Zen they talk of as a sudden awakening. That awakening, insight, understanding, in that tradition too, is not thought of as some distant goal, but as something that is imminent, something that can, can burst forth uh, in any moment. So there's very much a philosophy of imminence here. That this Dharma we talk about and, talk and discuss and ask ourselves what it means, it's actually right within us right now, as soon as reactivity dies down, stops. What this points to is that we already spend a good deal of our lives in a non-reactive state. Sometimes Buddhism gives us the picture of human beings as kind of reactivity machines that we're constantly on this kind of greed, hatred, delusion treadmill and it never stops. Maybe every now and again we get a little pause. But what this seems to be pointing to I think is actually much truer to our actual experience. That all human beings whatever their beliefs, whatever their philosophy of life, experience periods during each day in which they feel relatively calm and still and open, uh, responsive, and other periods during the day when they are overwhelmed by their fears and attachments and longings and so forth and so on. So it paints a picture of... Uh, a dharma, and we're going to further qualify that in a minute, um, that is something that's already right here in the heart of your own life and you can see it for yourself. It's very much bringing this down to earth. Now there's another passage um, which is um, also in the... Um, uh, the the uh, numerical discourses, 
where a similar conversation is uh, occurring between the Buddha and a Brahmin called Jangusoni. And I have no idea who he, is, who he is. And here he says, not that the Dharma is clearly visible, immediate, etc. He says, Nirvana is clearly visible. Nirvana is immediate, inviting, uplifting, to be personally experienced by the wise. So again, Nirvana here clearly has nothing to do with some exclusive Buddhist experience that uh, you get if you follow a certain set of teachings. It too, something which is often considered to be the very core of Buddhist practice and Buddhist insight, that too, it's clearly visible right now, immediate, inviting, uplifting, etc. And in addition to that, um, nirvana in this uh, passage here is also presented very clearly as an ethical space. It's not a metaphor for transcending the world or being somehow in a completely uh, non-reactive uh, mystical space. But this is how the Buddha describes it. He says, a person who has let go of reactivity, quote, neither plans for his own harm, nor for the harm of others, nor for the harm of both. And he does not experience in his mind suffering and grief. It is in this way, Brahmin, that nirvana is clearly visible. So nirvana is not just the absence of reactivity, which is a classical definition that we find in the discourses, but it also has positive ethical qualities. When, you're, when you let go of this reactivity, when you behold the stopping, the ceasing of this reactivity, you also are open to ethical possibilities. You don't plan to cause harm to yourself, to others, or both which implies that this non-reactive space is also an empathetic space. That greed and hatred and egoism are not just distortions or disturbances or negative habits, although they're probably all of those things as well, but they are also functioning as a kind of anesthetic. In other words, when you're locked into that pattern of, uh, of, of, of attachment or fear or whatever, you're also cut off from your sensitivity to be empathetic to others, to feel the suffering that you share with others, the, the life of which you are an integral part. So, We also need, I think, in the light of these passages, to, uh, to not to think of nirvana or enlightenment or whatever one of these rather uh, grandiose words we use as um, somehow referring to some distant or abstract experience, but actually to recognize that um, these uh, possibilities are um, present and available in specific moments of your and my concrete existence here and now. So what then can we understand by this uh, non-reactivity, this absence of greed, of hatred, delusion, this experience that's even called nirvana. At the conclusion of the first discourse of the Buddha, uh, one of the five members of the audience, one of the five ascetics called Kondanya, um, understands what the Buddha 
has said. And it says that his dharma eye opened. And as an expression of his understanding, he said, whatever is something that arises, that is something that ceases. Whatever arises, ceases. That encapsulated his moment of enlightenment, awakening, stream entry, in fact. And since it's quite explicit that what arises is reactivity or craving, what is triggered by the organism's uh, impact with its environment, is also something that, when left to its own devices, will naturally come to a stop. So, in meditation, we observe, we are witness to the rising up of a reaction. If we don't identify with it, if we don't fuel it, we can just observe it, hang around for a while, but in the end, it will follow its nature as a mental state to fade away and stop. And that moment of the natural fading away of reactivity is the experience of nirvana. That is nirvana. In the next moment, some other angry impulse or erotic fantasy or whatever you are, your, your, your re reaction of choice might be, could, could jump up again, could take you over again, but there's been a moment, maybe a few moments, maybe a considerable period of time in which you have been, as it were, non-reactive. And this is something that's immediate, it's available, it's inviting, is another to ehi pasiko, it's inviting. In other words, it's somehow appealing. It draws you, it calls you. It's a quality of experience that's uh, somehow deeply satisfying. You feel at ease, you feel at peace, you feel clear, you feel still. And the point of that is not to rest forever in that wonderful, quiet, satisfying, peaceful state of mind, but to recognize that this is like a door or an opening that enables the possibility of responding rather than reacting to what is going on. And that, I think, is again the, the reason why nirvana is considered to be an ethical space. It's a space in which you can choose to act differently. You are, at that moment, perhaps only for a brief period, freed from the, the power, the imperatives, the dictates of your habitual conditioned Reactions, And you take that moment as a moment of freedom to do something. And this is where the path begins to uh, open up and unfold. Another way in which the Buddha speaks of this nirvana or this non-reactivity, this space, is in the term emptiness. But emptiness, as is spoken of in the early discourses, is not something that is to be understood through gaining direct uh, awareness or understanding of. But the term the Buddha uses is viharati. Emptiness is a space in which to dwell. It's a dwelling. It's a vihara. Vihara has come to mean monastery. But it just means a dwelling place. 
there's one sutta where the Buddha describes emptiness as the Maha Purusha Vihara, the dwelling of the great person. So emptiness is not the absence of self, but it actually is where the great person lives. In the, the shorter discourse on emptiness in the Pali Canon, begins with the Buddha saying, for the most part I dwell in emptiness. And when he describes what that means, he describes it as dwelling in a, uh, a, 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 a quality of being that um, is fully aware of the body and the um, experience of being embodied, but is empty of reactivity. So emptiness is the emptiness of reactivity. It's a non-reactive space. Now in terms of the tasks that we're considering, this non-reactive space, this uh, stopping of reactivity, is something to be beheld that's the task, is to see it for yourself. In other words, it means to consciously valorize those moments in our life. It could be that we're often in a non-reactive space, but we don't really either pay it much attention, or perhaps we don't think of it as being terribly significant. What the Buddha seems to be um, calling upon us to consider is, well, maybe we should give those moments more value. Maybe we should consciously seek, when we are non-reactive, to, uh, to celebrate, to affirm that this is a human possibility, and to experience what it feels like in our bodies, And this, again, I think is something that, you know, very much in a meditation retreat like this, as we move, you know, into the fifth, sixth day of a retreat, you may have more and more periods in which the mind has settled, has become calm, and you experience for yourself a non-reactive state of mind. Pay attention to that. Notice it. Um, uh, feel what it's like. How does it register in your overall embodied experience? And how might you come to, to dwell or to abide or to live from that space? And this is exactly what uh, uh, the Buddha seems to be suggesting. There's a curious passage, uh, again in the numerical discourses, where the Buddha lists 21 people, all of whom are not monks. They are um, business people, politicians, doctors, merchants, all of whom the Buddha describes as people who have directly beheld this nirvana, this stopping of reactivity, and they go about their lives in the world from that perspective. I paraphrase slightly. But what is striking about that text is that it's not some preserve of the monk dwelling in the um, forest who has this uh, kind of experience, although, of course, that is... Uh, you know, very often the context in which this non-reactive space is practiced. But even those who are involved in the world, who have no um, interest or intention to, uh, to, 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 to leave their active lives, they too dwell in this non-reactive space and they lived their lives from its perspective. So we get glimpses um, 
in these early texts. And I have to confess, they are glimpses. There's not that many passages that are speaking in this tone of voice or in this manner, in this style. But there's enough of them to string together um, an account of the Buddha's teaching of the Dharma that doesn't appear to be addressed to renunciants, that is actually um, affirming how people in uh, a very busy, you know, business-like world live from this perspective. And that, I think, for many of us, is reassuring, uh, that it's not an exclusive practice for uh, renunciants. How does this tie to the third vow of the Bodhisattva, which is, Dharma gates are numberless, I vow to learn them all. Now, this vow, of all of them, seems to fit less easily with the um, four tasks. The task is to behold the stopping of reactivity. And this says, Dharma gates are numberless, I vow to learn them all. But think for a moment about what a gate is. A gate is an opening. A gate is a space through which you pass in order to uh, enter another set of possibilities. In, in Chinese, this, this word Dharma gate is often used as a synonym for uh, a teaching, uh, a discourse or a, a philosophy of Buddhism is a Dharma gate. But I think we can also understand it as a description of every situation that life presents us with. Every moment is a gateway. It can become a gateway. A gateway in which we can respond to that situation in a way that's not determined by our, our fears, our cravings, our egotistic demands or whatever. So the Dharma gate for me is, in this sense, uh, a synonym for nirvana, for the stopping of reactivity, which is a, an emptiness, as the texts say. And that emptiness is not a static uh, kind of cosmic emptiness, but that emptiness is an absence of what uh, prevents us from responding in a new way to the situation at hand. And then I think it makes sense to say that Dharma gates are numberless. Situations in life that afford the possibility of a non-reactive response are numberless. And I vow to learn them all. I vow, as it were, to take every occasion in my life as a Dharma gate, as a gateway, as an entrance into a new vision, into a new way of being in the world. And this then leads quite um, naturally, organically, effortlessly into the fourth task, which is cultivating a path, in this case, the Eightfold Path. It's as though the gate is the gateway to a path. It takes us onto a road. And this, I feel, is the goal of the whole practice. And this reading is admittedly unorthodox, but I think it uh, works um, quite effectively, both in being true to the early source materials, but also being true to the experience of life itself. That um, this practice 
is one that has as its goal the treading of the path itself. And nirvana, or emptiness, or non-reactivity, um, is thereby not the end of the path, but its beginning. That this way of life opens up through this unobstructed spaciousness of mind that leads us to see and think and speak and act and work and apply ourselves and pay attention and to concentrate. And all of those eight aspects of the path are to be cultivated, are to be developed. The word is bhavana, sometimes translated as meditation, which is, I think, misleading. What it really means is to bring something into being. The path does not lie ahead of us like the yellow brick road and we just have to take a leisurely stroll along it. But the path is a metaphor for an unimpeded, uh, purposeful space that we cultivate within ourselves. The path is a practice. The path is brought into being by our thoughts and our words and our acts. It's something we have to shape and form and create. And the problem with reactivity, as I've said, I think, already, is not that it causes suffering, which of course it often does, but perhaps the deeper problem, as would be suggested by this particular model of ELSA, the four tasks, is that it stands in the way or it blocks us from entering the stream of the path. It's, a, it, it's an inhibitor. As Mara, which is a personified way of speaking of it, it's that which uh, literally kills us, stops us in our tracks, the path to, to death, as it's called. So reactivity is what um, uh, closes us down, shuts us off from what we are actually capable as human beings uh, of realizing. This is a model for me of human flourishing, a term again uh, favored by translators for the Greek word eudaimonia which is likewise the goal of philosophy uh, in Greece as well, in ancient Greece. And I think this is very similar. It's about how do we flourish optimally as persons and as persons who are necessarily integrated in communities and societies, how do we live together? How do we create communities? How do those communities embody our values? Inevitably, in this process, we are led to consider questions of, of society, questions of politics. I think unavoidably. And the difference between um, reactivity and this way of um, responding is that we are entering into a different kind of ethic. Um, we're taking upon ourselves the uh, willingness to risk engaging with the world, to risk saying or doing something in response to a situation that we empathize with rather than uh, reacting out of habit, doing what is safe, being worried about what other people might think of us as we uh, act or speak, and instead seeking to respond to the world with an open heart and with an open mind. And that, 
entails risk. We cannot know in advance the outcome of what we say or do. And one of the qualities of uh, such um, a, a person who has entered the stream of the path is that they've left behind what is called sila bata, which means moral rules. Uh, it's usually mistranslated as rites and rituals. But really, it literally means sila, morals, bata, rules. In other words, we move into an ethic that is situational rather than legalistic. In other words, our, the governing principle of our response is not the question, what is the right thing to do? But it's the question, what is the wisest thing to do? What is the most loving, compassionate thing to do? And that question arises in response to the actuality of the specific situation, not um, a rule that is determined a priori in a set of precepts. You, know, you don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, etc. The precepts are useful only to the extent of giving us a broad framework of reference. If we take them literally and seek somehow to um, uh, obey them to the letter, we can end up being cruel. It may be that the appropriate response um, is to not tell the truth. The appropriate response might be to, in, to advise a, a young woman to have an abortion. It, it, it's, there's no kind of pre-established set of rules that are right in all circumstances and at all times. Now the Buddha describes this path as a stream, a sota. And the person who, um, who enters this path as a stream enterer one who enters the stream. Now again, I don't think he uses these, this metaphorical language um, uh, casually. These images, particularly the images of water, are right throughout the canon. The, the stream enterer, the one who's entered the path, is a person whose life has been freed, freed up, to flow. There's a whole psychology of flow in the West by uh, the psychologist Csikszentmihalyi. I said it right. <laughs> um, who, who, who describes a state of, let's say, psychological health as one in which you are in a condition of flow. And my sense is that this idea of entering a stream is entering or finding an experience of being in the world that feels as though it's flowing. And again, I don't think this is a particularly foreign idea when we're engaged in our work at home or if we're um, uh, meditating too, for example, very often what makes that task or that work or that relationship we have with the friend as something that registers bodily as worthwhile and fulfilling is because it somehow flows. There's something unimpeded and spontaneous and natural and organic about those moments, as opposed to other periods in our daily life where we feel that we're banging our head against a wall or we feel frustrated or, or stuck or we feel that we're going round in circles. This is the very opposite of that. It's not a repetitive uh, 
behavior. It's not that we are simply saying and doing things out of habit, just repeating the same old familiar um, motifs and phrases and ideas uh, that were said and thought a million times before. And I think in many ways, perhaps the most appropriate metaphor is the metaphor of the artist, the writer, the painter, the dancer, uh, the poet, um, who finds a way of expressing herself um, in a kind of natural spontaneity and flow. And those of us who've worked in the arts or as writers, uh, I'm sure, understand what this means. After all, we don't talk of writer's block for nothing. It's the same metaphor. Writing, painting, any activity can be one that can flow or we feel stuck in it. And what we're talking about here in this uh, fourfold task is uh, a methodology to find a way to live in such a way that our life is in a flow. So the path is compared to a stream and the person who has entered into that stream in those moments of flow is described as one for whom the path has become their own. In other words, when we're experiencing this flow, we are embodying and actualizing the path in the very fabric of our own bodies, minds, feelings, perceptions. It is ours. We're not doing it, we're not sitting in meditation or studying a text because somebody's told us to do so and we've rationally decided, hmm, probably a good idea. But it doesn't really feel, as it were, that we're doing our own uh, deeply uh, uh, passionate and intimate work, but we're following instructions of somebody else. And in meditation, I suspect for many of us, it, the practice often starts out, particularly with a practice you're not used to, maybe like doing, what is this? When you start just saying, okay, what did she say? What is this? Okay, what is this? And, <laughs> and it feels contrived, it feels a little bit awkward, a bit artificial, we don't quite get the point perhaps. But once we get used to it, once we somehow begin to connect with it, it gets to a point where it just becomes a very natural, spontaneous response to what's going on. So we can let go of the words altogether. They don't play any role. And we can just allow ourselves to be um, uh, in a relationship of, of, of puzzlement and wonder and curiosity with everything. And that feels entirely our own. We're not following an instruction anymore. And I feel that that's very much what um, uh, this practice is about. It's about becoming autonomous. And there is a word in Pali the Buddha uses quite frequently, although it's not a term you hear much about in Buddhist orthodoxy. It's aparapatya. The person who has entered the stream and for whom the path has become their own is said to be independent of others in the practice, not other-dependent, a-para-pachya. So this is very much a practice about, um, if we were to use Jungian language, individuation. It's about um, realizing uh, through letting go of reactivity, through embracing totally the situation at hand, of dwelling in this non-reactive space and then responding. Responding from the heart, 
responding uh, to the, uh, the suffering or whatever it is that is calling us at that moment, responding to that other person without defining that other person in terms of what we like or dislike about him or her or whatever prejudice we might have about them. They're a human being. They're like us. Just as I am, so are you. Just as you are, so am I. Comparing oneself with others, one should not kill or cause to kill. That, to me, is at the heart of the ethical life. That deep capacity to empathetically identify with the other. That's the framework in which we then seek to respond to life and hopefully thereby flourish as an individual and perhaps as a community. The whole of the path um, is described as samar. Samar means complete. This is usually translated as right. So we hear of right view, right thought, right speech, right action, and so on. And that doesn't, I think, convey the meaning of the word samar. Samar means complete or whole or integrated. And my sense um, is that the Eightfold Path is eightfold in the sense that it presents a model of a, uh, a wholly human existence, one in which the different dimensions of our life, the way we see and think and speak and work and so on, are no longer fragmented. They're no longer in different categories or compartments but are somehow brought together, are somehow brought into a, uh, an integrated or a holistic uh, way of being in the world. Nothing is disconnected or split off from this whole. And there's one sutta in the uh, connected uh, discourses where the Buddha describes the Eightfold Path not as leading to nirvana, which is the standard uh, uh, sort of uh, per pericope, or the standard description when you read the canon, it says, the noble eightfold path that leads to the end of suffering. That is repeated ad infinitum. But there's one sutta in which the eightfold path is described not as leading to nirvana. I've already suggested that actually it should be the other way around but where the Eightfold Path is described as leading to the rebuilding of a city, which is an eminently secular metaphor. The Buddha compares himself to a person who's uh, wandering lost in a forest and comes across an ancient path. And he follows that ancient path and he comes to the ruins of an ancient city. And then he leaves the forest and he goes to the king and the royal minister and asks them, please rebuild this city. Then the king and the royal minister gather the people of the area and set about restoring this city so that once again it becomes populated, uh, busy, full of activity, with parks and ramparts, a delightful place, it says. So this is, I feel, uh, uh, an indicator of how this path is not just a solitary spiritual um, practice for an individual, but when practiced together with others who share our values, it becomes a communal endeavor. It becomes what holds together what we call sangha, community. 
and community um, is, as a, of course, the, the building block of what we would call society, is a collection of communities. So this practice, I think, inevitably, from the very beginning, the idea of embracing suffering, is not just about embracing my particular anguish and problems that I have today, but it expands, it extends to embracing the suffering of life itself, the suffering of the world. And if that is where we begin with this practice, then likewise we are called upon to respond to that greater suffering in such a way that might make a difference. And the practice, I feel, leads therefore not only to um, another way in which we personally seek to lead our lives, but also it provides a model or a framework for how we might develop and construct and build community, in which case our practice goes beyond the personal into the interpersonal and into the, in a sense, the environmental, our relationship with the totality of life of which we are inseparable parts. I always find it amazing to think that the very DNA that uh, um, generates the grasses and the flowers outside is the same stuff that generates human life, that we share with life, uh, the, exactly the same building blocks and codes of genetics. We're not separate in any meaningful sense at all. So this brings us to the fourth vow. The Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. And this maps very neatly onto uh, the fourth task, which is to cultivate uh, the way, the path, the eightfold path. But here it becomes a vow. It becomes something that uh, um, I, we, somehow commit ourselves to. This is something um, that is not just going to be my, well, what I do on Sunday morning when I go to the temple or the church or come on a retreat. But this is a practice that I seek to realize in every area of my existence, from the most personal and subjective and private into the most uh, extended and public as well. So uh, tomorrow morning I will, um, I will revisit some of these ideas in terms of how they might translate into uh, meditation practice. But um, I'll conclude here with hopefully what has offered you a, a sketch at least, an outline of how these four tasks or this fourfold task might be, be practiced. I've spoken a little longer than um, I intended to. I, this is, I've got time for maybe one, two questions. Uh, someone who hasn't asked a question. The back. Darius? Um, I'm a little bit confused about the stopping of the activity. On, on Tuesday, in the instruction on letting go, you made a very compelling point about how reactivity is inherent in the organism. It just keeps mm. going on. And our task is to disentangle it. <laughs> What's going on? Um, okay, I'm going to repeat the question because it wouldn't have been picked up. Um, there seems to be a contradiction, the questioner suggests, between uh, what I was talking about a couple of days ago, which was to 
um, which, which was recognizing that reactivity is built into the organism itself and it's just a totally natural part of our lives. So what does it mean today to say that reactivity stops and we need to dwell in the stopping of that reactivity? I think we have to differentiate between a kind of, a, a kind of generalized language and a specific um, articulation of what goes on from moment to moment. I do think it's true that reactivity is built into our system. I also think um, through this kind of practice, one, the, the more that one ceases to identify and buy into reactivity, that will probably diminish its force. But it won't, I think, ever lead to it disappearing for good. But in a specific case, let's say when we're sitting in meditation uh, at a given moment, we can observe a moment of reactive behavior, let's say anger. And in the specific, we can observe it arise and we can observe that moment of anger die away and stop. I don't think that's saying something too uh, provocative. It seems fairly self-evident. But that doesn't mean that reactivity as such has stopped. It, meant, it means that that particular moment, that instance, has come to a stop, and it's in the stopping at that instant of that specific reaction that other possibilities open up, non-angry possibilities open up. might only remain for a few moments before the next one comes up. But I think what it's pointing to, and again, the whole discourse with Sivaka, he recognizes when reactivity is activated within himself. He recognizes when it's not activated. So reactivity, I think, is a given, but the extent to which it is actualized or active um, is something that comes and goes. It is for perhaps quite you know, significant moments. Uh, it's, it's dormant, let, let's say. It's not uh, arising as such, um, and at other times it does. So that, I would hope, explains that point, does it? Sort of. <laughs> Here, yes. Okay, uh, the dif is there a difference? The difference between a stream enter and a Buddha. Um, in the classic early model, it would be more the difference between a stream enter and an arahant. That's more the standard language. Um, and in fact, in early Buddhism, you actually find there's the stream enter, the once returner, the non returner, the arahant. That's the standard model of progress, as it were. But when you go back, say, to some of the early suttas, you just find stream entry described, um, and then you find uh, arhats. Like if you take the first two discourses the Buddha is supposed to have given, at the end of the first discourse, one of the five ascetics became a stream entrant, his dharma eye opened, as I mentioned. At the end of the next discourse, which happened few weeks later, maybe, it says that all five of the monks became arhants. And then it says at the very last words, and then there were six arhants in the world, the Buddha and five others. Now, what are we to make of that? Um, for me, what is important in a practical sense of living this teaching is to seek to um, live a life in which the path is my own and in which I experience that sense of flow within the framework of the Dharma. And I don't think of stream entry as some private mystical attainment that takes you know, years or uh, practice and hard work to get a glimpse of. That's how it's often projected 
today. Uh, very few Buddhist, Buddhists uh, would have the temerity to think of themselves as stream entrants. I think if you're on this retreat and you get these ideas and they are something real and meaningful for you, then you are in that stream. I don't have a problem with that. I think it's been massively uh, exaggerated. Uh, that's another story. Why? I think that's what religion does, is it tends to alienate the ordinary person from the core values of the tradition. They become raised up on pedestals and put increasingly out of reach. And I would understand the word arhant to be, it was a term that was already in use at the Buddha's time, and it basically meant something like a saint or a worthy one. And I take it really to be simply a kind of ideal um, sort of uh, archetype, if you wish, that gives us a sort of sense to which um, symbolically we would seek to have our life move towards and unfold. Um, I'm not terribly interested in trying to uh, specify whether person X is an arhant or not, or these questions like, is the, you know, is the Dalai Lama enlightened? Uh, I find this rather a curious conversation that one would want to have. Um, above all else, because it begs a more interesting question. Enlightened about what? We sometimes use the word enlightenment as though it's a quality that exists sui generis, in its own right, in certain people and not in others. But what are you enlightened about? What have you woken up to? I understand this whole business as a process. And in that, I'm perhaps more influenced by Zen than by the rather more step-by-step uh, uh, -step gradualistic accounts of the path that we find in Theravada and in the Tibetan traditions. Uh, I'll conclude, actually, because we're running out of time, with um, a saying of Huineng, who was the sixth Chinese patriarch of the Zen tradition, he says, when an ordinary per person becomes awakened, we call them a Buddha. When a Buddha becomes deluded, we call them an ordinary person. <laughs> now, this is a very different uh, way of thinking about these things. And um, I think there is evidence in these early texts for such a, a view. You know, the Sivaka thing, I know when I'm experiencing nirvana, and I know what I'm not. In other words, um, being awake is, not, is a possibility each of us has in each moment. It has to, the real question is not, are you on a path that's going to take you to enlightenment? The real question is, to what extent in this moment can you be more rather than less awake? To what extent can this moment embody your deepest values, the things you consider most important in this life? And to what extent do you fail? To what extent do you, you fall short of your own, uh, of what it is you, of being the person that you aspire to be? That's a challenge from moment to moment. And it's also a framework for how we conceive of our life in the long term. I think, the, I think both have to go hand in hand. Uh, we need a certain vision, a certain ideal, if you like, um, according to which we, um, we behave and we judge our own, our own actions and thoughts. But the real challenge is to embody them in each moment. So we have a Buddha nature and a Mara nature. Sometimes Mara wins, sometimes we're closed down, shut off. At other times, maybe in the next moment, we're open, empathetic, and we surprise ourselves by the wisdom of what we say and do. 
So we have to stop here. No, we don't have time, man. I'm sorry. We've only got ten minutes. Maybe tomorrow. <laughs> We've got ten minutes. We need to take a break, and uh, we'll gather back here. No, ten minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.